I've always felt like a black sheep a little bit in every environment I've been in. And then a friend of mine introduced me to this quote by a political scientist economist named Herbert Simon, who said, a designer is anyone who changes existing situations into preferred ones. And then I write and I was like, that's what I do. And then I realized that there's a discipline to it. Welcome to another episode of Design Lab. I'm your host, Bon Koo. On this show, we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? This week, our guest is Dr. Neil Shaw. Neil is an assistant professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive biology at Harvard Medical School, and he's now the chief medical officer of Maven Clinic. It's the largest virtual clinic for women's and family health. As an OBGYN at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, Neil cares for patients at critical moments that range from childbirth to primary care to surgery. Neil is also a scientist and social entrepreneur. He is globally recognized as an expert in designing solutions that improve healthcare. Becker's Hospital Review lists him as among the 40th smartest people in healthcare. His work to build equitable, trustworthy systems of care has been profiled by the New York Times, CNN, and other outlets. And he's going to be featured in a forthcoming documentary that's going to be produced by Oprah Winfrey and Yance Ford. Neil has written more than 50 peer-reviewed academic papers and contributed to four books. Prior to joining Harvard's faculty, Neil founded Cost of Care. It's an NGO that curates insights from clinicians and patients to help delivery systems provide better care. In 2017, he co-founded the March for Moms Association. It's an organization that increases public and private investment in the well-being of mothers. I love it when we get feedback from listeners Donald Keating, thank you for that shout out on Twitter. Donald loved last week's episode with Dr. Katie Pedito on designing equitable health environments. And don't forget, you as a listener, you can support this show. It's so simple to do. Just go to Apple Podcasts, give us five stars, leave us a comment, follow us on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. I really enjoyed this conversation with Neil. I've been a huge admirer and fan of his. Neil and I talk about why so many women in the U.S. die in childbirth and how he is on a mission to redesign the childbirth process. Here's my conversation with Dr. Neil Shaw. Neil Shaw, welcome to Design Lab. So happy that you can join us. Thank you, Bon. I'm so excited to be here. I'm a huge fan of yours. I've been following your work for years. And in doing my research on you, what I didn't know is that you are a consultant for an episode of the TV medical series, The Resident. <laughs> what, what was that experience like? Well, my, I, I had a friend who was a screenwriter, and then they were interested in doing an episode on maternal mortality. And through my work, I became close friends with Charles Johnson, who lost his wife Mm-hmm. in childbirth. And it was a really powerful and meaningful episode because you're able to depict that story. And I was able to provide some insight on the, the cl- clinical side. And when tragedy happens in medicine, I think it's important to have empathy for everybody involved. Yeah. Um, I thought they did a, a really nice job. And then I got a $1 check from <laughs> like Fox. I, I saw that. I saw that on Instagram. Yeah, <laughs> which I thought was amazing. And then they actually hounded me for months for not cashing it. <laughs> <laughs> so did you actually like go out to LA on set 
And no, I didn't get was... to do that. I didn't get to do that. I just spoke to them uh, virtually a couple times, but I thought that was amazing. It was really important to them to to pay me that one dollar. So. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm impressed that the show reach out to someone like you because sometimes they reach out to physicians who don't have that expertise. So, kudos for them to reaching out to a true expert in in the space, right? It was a matter of being in the right place at the right time, maybe. But it was so important as there's this crazy statistic, Bon, that an American today is 50% more likely to die in childbirth than their own mother was, which is just so mind-boggling. Wait, wait, wait. can you repeat that? 50%. Yeah, so- an American today is 50% more likely to die in childbirth than her own mother was. And then underneath that is all kinds of inequity. Like if you're black, you're three to four times more likely to die. So there's a racial equity issue. There's a generational equity mm. issue in it. There's a gender equity issue in it, obviously. But it wasn't something that we were aware of as a country until like two or three years ago. And I'm sure that a lot of the listeners have seen a lot of the headlines on maternal mortality, Black maternal mortality in particular, mm-hmm. or stories from people like Serena Williams or Beyonce yeah. or Meghan Markle. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was just as this was beginning to emerge into the public consciousness. And the, the whole idea in telling stories about things that don't go well in healthcare is to empower people with information and not terrify them. So I was glad to be a part of it for that reason, too, to just think about how to portray it in a thoughtful way. Yeah. And yeah. you are a great storyteller, even though you're uh, a geek like me in academic medicine, I think you're kind of like one of the closest thing of being like this rock star in academic medicine, where you're like this leading voice in media publications, right? You've been in the New York Times, CNN, CBS, ABC. What, I guess, compels you to go in those outlets? Because that's a little bit unusual for folks like us in academic medicine. I think... um Early in my career, I learned the importance and power of being a good translator when you live in so much of what happens in our healthcare environment spawn, like in your emergency room or on my labor and delivery unit is a black box to the outside world. So I remember um, in the mid-aughts, I was a medical student. I left medical school to go to the Kennedy School of Government and was surrounded by health economists. Yeah. And in the mid-aughts, President Bush was in office and that meant there were a lot of people teaching at the Kennedy School. <laughs> <laughs> waiting that out. And then there's this freshman senator running for president who had no business running in the first place and had no chance of winning because Hillary Clinton was in the field. But I was like so compelled by that campaign. I was like, dude, I'll get you coffee, like whatever. And a lot of the people that were at the Kennedy School around me who also supported Barack Obama were the people that eventually wrote the Affordable Care Act. Mm. And so they're like brilliant, like the top Harvard economists, right? And what I realized in spending time with them as a third year medical student was that they are like astronomers looking through a telescope at a planet that I lived on. Um, (laughs) They can make these like global inferences, but they don't know what it's like to like be on planet earth or whatever the case might be, which is not to disparage them at all. It's just, I I realized that even as a third year medical student, I had value in the room by just explaining what I was seeing and doing. And I think I, I learned how to do econometrics, I guess, at the Kennedy School. But the real hard skill that I walked away with was learning how to be a translator from my world to theirs and vice versa. Mm, that is a common thread that, that we have because I went to Princeton to their policy school and that was the same thing. I was in class with Professor Uwe Reinhardt who sadly died a few years ago. But being in that class, I'm like, you guys have no understanding of what it's like to be in a hospital, right? You're making these policy decisions that impact my life, the life of my patients. But do you understand what's going on the on the front lines? And it was important 
that I felt the same way that I had to translate what I was doing to these different worlds, these decision makers. Absolutely. And vice versa. I mean, Uwe Reinhardt is a great example. Somebody who is actually a great communicator. Like it's the price is stupid, right? He would just say the most blunt and and there's real power, I think in general and calling it as you see it in ways that are authentic, no matter what world you inhabit. And then really um, with intention, trying to empathize with people who inhabit different worlds and reach out to them. Yeah. Now I saw that you have taken on this new role as chief medical officer at Maven Clinic. What is Maven Clinic and why this transition? Oh, you're catching me at a bittersweet moment. As I, you know, I was telling you, um, I've been an academic for eight years. That's right when being a professor gets, maybe cushy isn't the right word, but you at least know how to do your job. Like you, you feel like you know what you're doing clinically, you know how to write grants, how to produce papers. And by contrast, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I don't really know how to be an executive at a healthcare technology company, but that's part of the appeal. Like, I think I'm really excited to learn and grow. That was a big part of it. But specifically, this seemed very on mission. I think Mm. the existential problem for the healthcare system right now is a lack of trustworthiness. Yeah. And trust turns out requires more than producing equitable outcomes. We don't even do that well, Mm. but we also need to be able to reliably show up for people like when they need us, like in the brick and mortar system, when you cancel an appointment, you have to wait weeks or months to reschedule. You often don't get follow-up. People get left in the lurch all the time. And you have to affirm people's dignity along the way. Like, you know, nobody would give birth in a Johnny tethered to wires underneath fluorescent lighting, unless they Mm -hmm. thought it was the safest way to do it. And we often treat people's experience in healthcare as this like secondary luxury that's about customer satisfaction or something. But when people are vulnerable, it's about affirming their dignity. And what Maven is, they're the largest virtual provider for women and families. They are in 175 countries or a global provider. Largest in, in the world, not just the U.S., I, I think they're the largest period. Yeah. Like wow. qualification. Yeah. Wow. They've served up to 10 million people at this point. And what they've solved is this trustworthiness problem. If you want to talk to a provider and you're anywhere between your fertility and kind of early parenting journey, you can talk to a qualified provider, whether they're OB, a mental health specialist, a lactation consultant within 27 minutes like any time of day, anywhere in the world that you are. And that's incredible. Like that chassis feels worth building on. That is, wow. I mean, I just remember when my wife had given birth and it was hard to get that lactation consultant, right? It was like, how do I, she was like having pain and like, how do you reach that expert? And we're both physicians and like, it was difficult to do that. And I'm like, no, we need help. Like right now, we don't need help in a week from now. Like we have totally. this new baby. We don't know what to do. Yeah. I mean, and breastfeeding is hard is. and obstetricians know very little about how to help people like tactically with that. And, you know, bringing a new baby is hard if you've got another child and pediatricians actually are not always the ones that are best positioned to help with behavioral issues or, you know, let alone the the issues that so many women in particular face and just having to earn a living wage and take care of a newborn while getting sleep deprivation, like POW level sleep deprivation. And so the fact that those services could be tapped into a reliable, I thought was a game changer. And the idea that we could impact so many people at that level of scale, reach new populations and build really good care models on top of it was just 
too enticing. So it's uh, a little scary to make the leap, honestly, from academia to this yeah. new role, but I'm really excited about it, Bon. That's, I can't wait to see what you do at uh, Maven Clinic. Well, I'm going to be a full-time designer. Yeah, tell me about that. Like, how did you get like interested in design? I don't know, but what I do know is that a couple years ago, I realized that's what my job was. Because I've always felt like a black sheep a little bit in every environment I've been in. And then a friend of mine introduced me to this quote by a political scientist, economist named Herbert Simon, who said, a designer is anyone who changes existing situations into preferred ones. Mm, I love that. And then I, right. And I was like, that's what I do. And then I realized that there's a discipline to it. There's a genuine discipline that I'd been absorbing from people who designed with that broad conception of design my whole career, whether it was the physicist that I wrote my undergrad thesis with or Atul Gawande, who taught me that 95% of coming up with a solution is defining the problem right, to um, now working with product people and engineers who have aims and constraints and design principles, and they're so methodical. And yeah, and so at some point I realized it was designer and then I was like, well, if we're going to design things that are meant to be scalable, it seems like a great place to go do it, to not just evangelize ideas, but to build them. So I'm like you for many years, we were designing, but not even knowing that we were designing because we had this conceptual model of what a designer is. And like they design with physical materials, like wood and textiles, and they make furniture and clothing. But I think our design material are maybe policies, they're services, they're in the digital space. And that's what I had that realization too. I'm like, whoa, a lot of these things are designed poorly. And there's an opportunity here to redesign the way healthcare operates and the services and experiences in healthcare. But in our world, I think uh, many things are not designed at all. Mm. Like it's just spaghetti against the wall. Or especially when it comes to care models, which I think a model of care has as much impact on people's well-being as a drug or device. And yet it truly is sometimes. And right now, models of care are proliferating. Like there's so much innovation in how to deliver care coming out of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. You know, prenatal care had a fixed model for a, a whole century. For 100 years, it was like you go 14 times to see a clinician at a prescribed schedule based on nothing. It's truly like the ultimate historical accident. And then it just propagated. And now then that couldn't happen during the pandemic. Yeah. So there's like a thousand natural experiments across the country on how to do prenatal care. And it's amazing. And they deserve the same intentionality and design and rigorous evaluation as like a device or a drug, but we don't do that. I saw that you were senior author on a paper called the design of team birth, a care process to improve communication and teamwork during labor. I I love that research study. Can you explain what that research was about? Absolutely. So I spent most of the last eight years of my life at a place called Ariadne Labs, which was founded by Atul Gawande and is based at Harvard and aims to produce really designed care processes that can alleviate suffering at massive scale. And the surgical safety checklist that many Mm -hmm. clinicians are familiar with and checklist manifesto. So people probably more broadly than healthcare are familiar with is probably like my go-to example of a brilliantly designed thing. Cause there's no tech in it, Bon, like there's no blockchain. There's no AI. It's It's so so simple. simple. (laughs) And to me, the best designs have this sort of simplicity principle. That doesn't mean easy. Mm-hmm. but, or even just intuitive, but what they do is they take the complexity of the world 
and they distill it into something. But the surgical safety checklist, actually part of its brilliance, is it's fairly content agnostic. Most people mm. think that it's about making sure that you're doing the particular things, but it's actually the activity of using it in an operating room that enables effective teamwork. Mm. And it turns out, you know, teamwork and communication failures are like 90% of surgical errors. Mm. And it turns out that labor and delivery is no different. Like childbirth is the ultimate team sport. Like you can't walk into the woods and have a baby. I wouldn't recommend it, let's say, clinically. <laughs> Homo sapiens, we evolved large frontal lobes and narrow pelvises and dexterity all at the same time. To walk upright, we had to have narrow pelvises and then they gave us our hands back. And so we help each other out during childbirth and 80 to 90% of sentinel events were communication and teamwork related, but we didn't have a system to make sure that the things that should be communicated during every labor assessment happen every time. So rather than spaghetti against the wallet or just assume that communication is this artisanal craft, we tried to put a process on it and it turned out it was like a total game changer. Now, did you work with designers on that process? Yeah. We worked with the same designer who designed the, that checklist okay. and adopted a lot of the lessons from like Boeing and what they did with the B-52 bomber. We worked with actually a group of 50 stakeholders that included industrial engineers, but also people across the childbirth professions, people who represented the perspective of people giving birth themselves. I mean, isn't that a novel idea? And we, you know, the whole thing, again, it's like analog, there's no tech in it. Mm but it's a whiteboard. It's a version of the dry erase whiteboard that is in every inpatient room in America. Only right now it's small and in a corner and primarily for nurses to talk to themselves. And instead we made a big one that everyone can see that's structured. And during every labor assessment, you write down who's on the team and what the role is. So everyone has role clarity and psychological safety. You write down the things only the mom can tell you, like her preferences and symptoms. You write down the plan. And then you write down the next time the team is going to get back together again. And that's so that people in labor don't feel like passengers on a plane that's being held on the tarmac without the pilot telling mm -hmm. you what's happening. Uh, and it turns out doing those things not only makes it so that people giving birth are more likely to understand what's happening to them and feel like they have the role that they want in their own care and that their preferences make a difference, which are all hugely meaningful by themselves. But it turns out it probably has a sustained impact on C-section rates severe maternal morbidity and unexpected newborn complications too. It's like amazing, a whiteboard, a board on a wall. I love this because you are contributing to the medical literature on the science of the delivery of healthcare, the, the teamwork. And that it's, I think some people think it's like fluff. And if it's not like some randomized control trial with a drug or a procedure, it's not as impactful in healthcare and you're like legitimizing this design research in the actual delivery of healthcare that we as practitioners experience on a day-to-day -day basis. I have an agenda to do that. And I, I want to conspire with you actually <laughs> yeah, to make that. <laughs> let's do it. Cause I, I think what I realized is like empiricism only works when you have a structured problem that's structured in a particular way. But the role of design is to structure the problem in the first place so often. And that requires discipline. And I, I think it, it should. I also think that generally within academia, we have ways of innovating that often, like when we, we have a, a model of care, we just pre-post it. And we're like, we, we came, we saw, we conquered. We never talk about like how we actually implemented it or how we developed it. There's huge room for that. In industry, they do that all the time. Yep. But they keep their process in a black box. And we'll see how this turns out, but I, I want to challenge that too. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
I think there's room for for industry to open up their black boxes a little bit. They've got to keep things proprietary. I understand that, but to explain how they're producing things too. You are on this mission to redesign childbirth, and and I love it. And let's talk a little bit about that. As many as one in three pregnancies in the U.S. are by C-section, which is crazy. It, it's so common that when I ask my patients in the emergency room, have you had any operations? A lot of times women don't mention C-section, which I think is mind-boggling. It's a major huh. procedure. Like, yeah. Because I think they just like think of it as childbirth. Like I deliver a child. They don't think of that as a C-section, but I'm like, no, that, so I actually, in my taking of the history of my patients, I go, have you had a C-section? instead of having had operations, I have to be that specific because I think C-sections are so common. And, you know, my wife's a physician, she's had two C-sections. We didn't want that and ended up happening. Our kids are nice and healthy, but tell us about why C-sections are so high in the U S Bon, that, I mean, all of that deeply resonates. It's not just that C-sections are high. It's that they've become 500% more frequent in the last generation. So if you were to pick three statistics to explain childbirth in America and how it's changed generationally, it's that we intervene in childbirth with major surgery, as you said, 500% more. And over that time period, term infants, I mean, it's designed to rescue, mm -hmm. right? Term infants are 0% better off as a result of the 500% increase and mothers are 50% more likely to die. Oh my God. And there's a way of normalizing deviancy. <laughs> Right. I mean, that that sort of over time, and I think around childbirth in particular, it's so easy to normalize the status quo in every part of the world. And I haven't totally figured out why, but mm -hmm. I think that it's a lack of empathy. Mm -hmm. I think that when people have cancer, there's a different way that we empathize with them. Most people know people who have mm -hmm. of some type and we're deeply empathetic. And to the point where if there's a meeting about cancer on Capitol Hill, you can push a button and like thousands of pink ribbons will show up. Mm -hmm. But for childbirth, there's this sort of collective, like we all do it and we're all born. So we all have to collectively suck it up <laughs> in, in Malawi where maternal mortality is so common that most people know somebody who's died. There's a lot of fatal mm. on the Upper East side of Manhattan. As you said, one in three people get major surgery to give birth and one in 10 of their babies goes to the neonatal ICU and everyone just regards that as normal. It's really yeah. remarkable. And that just struck me as very abnormal. And I had such a hard time understanding it because when I do a C-section, I'm always right personally. Like I did several <laughs> yesterday, you know? And when, if the baby comes out looking perfect, I'm like, well, it's a good thing to do a C-section. And if the baby comes out with low APGAR scores, I'm like, see, it's a good thing to do a C-section. So it's pretty good to be me, you know? But And I just couldn't reconcile the numbers. So last eight years for me have been on a journey to try to figure all this out. Is it because of a... Is it because of poorly designed like policies? Is it like a cultural thing? Is it patient preference? It's and not preference. Mm. There, there's when people request C-sections, it's very memorable. There was like a UK daily mirror, mirror headline back in the Spice Girls era that said <laughs> too posh to push. And it was like Victoria Beckham, but like it, it's less than half a percent of people are demanding a C-section. Even in places like Brazil, where there's mm. really high rates, or even in places like China and India, where there's a lot of consideration around auspicious states and things like that, people aren't truly demanding C-sections. Demographics don't explain it. Moms today are older than they used to be. There's more hypertension, diabetes, there's more IVF, but that doesn't explain it. A healthy 18-year-old today is almost twice as likely to get a C-section today as when she was born. The best explanation I have, which brings it back to design, is that 
in healthcare, especially, but in life in general, we often face a dichotomous choice between doing the right thing and the easy thing. Hmm. And they don't line up on labor and delivery. The harder thing is always to support labor and to persist under ambiguous, uncertain conditions. And the easier thing is always to pull the ripcord. And then on top of that, it turns out that the cost structures around labor and delivery units are top heavy. Um, the average labor and delivery unit is functionally an ICU. There's no ventilators, but there's one-to-one -one nursing, there's uh, telemetry. The only difference between an ICU and like the cardiac ICU and the labor floor are identical in every way, except the labor floor has its operating rooms attached to it. Hmm. So it's fundamentally the most intense treatment area of the whole hospital for the healthiest people. And then you're like, okay, you take 99% of Americans, put them in ICUs, surround them by surgeons. That's why we have a lot of surgery. <laughs> And you did this great research study with one of my favorite architecture firms, Mass Design Group, looking at the geography of labor and delivery units. And there's this, a correlation between C-section rates and the actual physical environment and layout of a labor and delivery floor. Is that right? That's right. Michael Murphy and I did an event who is the founder of Mass Design last week. And he called me his spirit animal, which I love because I was like, no, you're my spirit animal because I've learned so much from working with them, including like when they think about design, they're talking about things in the physical world, like the built environment architecture. And Michael says that architecture is never neutral. It either heals or it harms. And that, that notion just totally blew my mind. But one of the things that he taught me is just this idea of different scales. Like when I'm designing team birth, it's a process and it between someone giving birth and the people taking care of them. And then there's like the scale of like the room that it happens. Then there's the whole floor plate of the hospital. And then it turns out like the floor plate of a hospital doesn't change very much. It's really expensive to change it. And almost every labor and delivery in room, except for the color of the walls is like the same and where the windows are. But what is hugely different from one hospital to the next is the layout of the unit. And I never noticed that before. And then it turns out that every public use facility in America has a fire escape map on the wall, which is a floor plan. <laughs> so we started to get people to send us their floor plans and realize they're all different kinds of shapes. And then I put it in front of the mass architects and they read those shapes the way a cardiologist reads an EKG. Like they were like, oh, well, that must mean that a nurse covering two patients has to walk these huge distances. And I'm like, that's gotta be different than someone who works in a pod design. I'm like, yeah, totally. And then they were like, where are the workstations? And we started to realize that like, yeah, you can almost predict a C-section rate off of a floor plan. That is amazing. It's kind of like what we we're talking about before of there's a system around childbirth and either that system has been poorly designed and not designed at all. Is there an opportunity to redesign that system around childbirth? 100%. There are, are two quotes that I love that are kind of like 101 of systems engineering, if not systems thinking. But one is every system is perfectly designed to get the results that it gets. So if you have a system that's producing one in three people getting major surgery and one in 10 of their babies going to the NICU, it's designed to do that. If there's a system that makes a black person in America, four times more likely to die in childbirth. Wait, like currently that's a stat. currently, currently that's the stat. If you're black in America, regardless of your education or income, you're four times more likely to die in childbirth. That is not just, wow. it's not just that racism exists. And this is the point. 
in obstetrics is that obstetrics is sort of, or maternal health outcomes are one of the leading examples of systemic racism. That is the definition of systemic, right? And that's why like every system is perfectly designed to get the results that it gets. But then the challenge, especially around concepts like racism, is that it's also true that a bad system will beat a good person every time. Mm. And I think actually in designing better systems for childbirth, one of the opportunities is to take some of the deep injustice that we see and not just cast it in interpersonal terms, but really think about how the system is set up to do what it's doing and then fundamentally rethink it. Yeah. And, and you talk about designing dignity in childbirth. What, what does that mean? Like practically? Well, like one of the things that you said to me, Bon, is that you and your wife are physicians and your wife had two C-sections and both your kids are healthy. And that, that last clause is always the thing, right? When people leave the hospital and their kids have the right number of fingers and toes. And honestly, even if they don't, people are pretty happy to have emerged from the process with their baby. Yeah. But people deserve to have goals other than emerging unscathed from the process, right? Mm. Like survival is the floor. Like in our sharp focus on maternal mortality, we forget that people at the beginning of life, at the end of life, and in many moments in between have goals other than simply surviving it. And yeah, people deserve to um, be seen and heard to the extent they not only deserve it, the need is so deep right now in America. And I'm moving to Maven Clinic. They're a company that is the largest virtual provider in the world for a reason for women and families. But also there are tens of billions of dollars in the Silicon Valley for mental health, for primary health care, for other sort of virtual care models that just make people know that they're seen and heard. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Like in, in wow. many cases, like these delivery models, they, they're not even yet at the point where they're producing improved outcomes in a demonstrated way, but they're, what they are doing is ensuring people are seen and heard. And the demand and the hunger for that is so deep that like you're seeing all of these companies. There's so many unmet needs. I've been speaking to some of the OBs and psychiatrists at my hospital and talking about the under recognition of like postpartum depression and the, the lack of tools and the lack of resources for patients to be able to recognize it and to do something about it. And it's, and it, how does Maven Clinic address that? Well, in full disclosure, I'm a few weeks away from being fully ramped up into my role, but I think that the main way they do it is just making sure that people are not alone. Mm. First thing, I mean, they've solved the front end UI UX stuff mm. in a beautiful way, but yeah. also the back end that really counts of having people show up for you when you want them to. And when I explain Maven Clinic to people, especially colleagues who work in our brick and mortar system yeah. and have a hard time understanding what virtual, because you can't deliver a baby virtually, fun. but they're, like, they're like, what is this? And, and so what you do is I just open the app and I show it to them. And the first thing it says is we've got your back, right? And then you click book a visit and you don't look for like cholelithiasis, right? You like uh -huh. type in a query, like a normal person. And then you get a, an instant response. You also have a community of people that mm. are not only going through similar experiences, but you have someone like a human being who's advocating for you and connecting you to the resources that you need. Amazing. I, I was curious to know, did you always want to be an OBGYN like growing up? Like you come from a family of OBGYNs? No, no. It was the last thing that I thought I was going to do as a dude in my early twenties. So <laughs> much so that I did it first in medical school to get it out of the way. You know, like you do your rotations and yeah. you're like, you're kind of like burn the first one. Uh -huh. And I'm always, I've been a little bit of a dilettante my whole life. And so 
I thought I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but OBGYN was not it. And then I did it. And truthfully, when you're, and I'm sure you found this to be the case in your medical school rotations too. Like when you're there for a delivery, it's cool, right? It's like amazing. You're seeing, it's I amazing. wanted to be an OBGYN. I was like, this is like the coolest right? thing. It this is, is the greatest. This is thing. life right here. It was totally. like so I mean, exciting. On every level, it's amazing, right? Like you're seeing a family meet their newest family member. You're seeing, you know, the person giving birth accomplishes huge feat. It's just incredible. It never gets old. There's no existential crisis in the middle of the night when you're delivering babies. That's why I can be here and be like fired up post-call. <laughs> but then even that didn't do it. I went through every other rotation. Then I left medical school, went to the Kennedy school, did other things. And then in the end, what I realized was in every specialty, you have to give something up. And in OBGYN, the only thing you have to give up is treating men, which I'm probably the only OB who genuinely misses that. (laughs) Um, But other than that, like you do primary care, you see people access the system, you deliver babies, you do surgery. And then the kinds of people, Bon, that go into OBGYN, I didn't know this at the time, but now that you're asking in hindsight, I think I just wanted to be around them. And the reason is you can't do women's health without caring about social justice. This is not possible. Mm. And it's not that general surgeons don't care. It's just when you're operating on a gallbladder, it's not the same thing as uh, stewarding people or caring for people around their reproductive journey. Yeah. And that's another thread I wanted to hit on of your social justice life as, as a physician, which as academic physician, like not all of us are into social justice causes. One, it's just a hard job that we have. And there's not that incentive structure in academic medicine to be involved in improving health and well-being for people and communities and especially underserved populations in the US. And you're part of this organization called March for Moms. Can you tell us how you got involved with that, what that is? Sure, Bon. I mean, so March for Moms came from this idea that there's not enough empathy around childbirth. Like that's like, I spent enough time in policy circles to know that moms advocate for every progressive cause except for their own well-being. Like, and that's the expectation of moms, right? There's moms against drunk driving, moms against guns, moms demand action, but there wasn't like a moms for moms. Like people expect mm-hmm. moms to put their own well-being last in order to put their families first. And that makes it really hard to change. Like if you're a designer and you want to change existing situations into preferred ones, first of all, you have to have clarity about what you mean by the existing situation and what the preferred situation is. And then you have to be organized. And so that was the inspiration for March for Moms, which started off as a volunteer led event. And honestly, it was a little bit of like spaghetti against wall. The idea we just, we got a national park permit at the beginning of the Trump presidency. I think when nobody was looking because <laughs> like nobody was, you know, really paying attention, but we got a permit to use the Jefferson Memorial on mother's day without a fully baked plan of what we were going to do with it. And then we went around to like everyone who thought of themselves as a steward of maternal health and asked for ideas in exchange for sponsorship. And put up an event and it, it over the years became not a volunteer led event, but really like a professionally led movement, a nonprofit that's been really successfully advocating for federal legislation has gotten some things passed, gotten some things advanced and kind of modeled. I think, I think the other challenge in childbirth is it's been very tribal, mm. like midwives, OBs. Yeah. My, my, my co-founder is a, a midwife from Kansas. 
Wow. Um, and, and, and I, and that was sort of the, the, the way of kind of building out and modeling the ways that people with different perspectives could come together yeah. around something that's existentially important to all of us. Yeah. It's very siloed. It seems this team of like, you got the doulas, you got the midwives, you got the OBGYN and I love how the organization combines those uh, different silos. And if people want to donate to it, they could just like go on the website. They can. Thank you that for that. Awesome. Uh, anytime you want, you can donate and donations are appreciated, but you can also participate. You can sign up for our newsletter. And if these are issues that fire you up, there are a whole bunch of ways to get involved and take action. Yeah. One other tab I wanted to pick up on, I forgot was what other countries do it better than the U.S. in terms of maybe lower C-section rates, bringing more dignity into the process of childbirth, have a better designed system around maternal health? I haven't seen a perfect system, Bon, but I have spent time in places like the Netherlands. They always kick our butt and everything. The Netherlands. Right. I mean, so I want to move there. <laughs> when it comes to design, like you go to yeah. Amsterdam and you're like, they started off with lots of cars. Now yeah. there are bikes everywhere. Yeah. And, and they did that in a city that's hundreds of years old. So why yeah. can't we? And they're underwater and they yeah. still figured it out. But yeah, I mean, but in Western Europe in general, they start off with a different set of premises, I think around what people deserve and then a different structure from which the system follows. But in our country, 90% of people see a surgeon primarily to take care of what is a normal physiologic process mm. and then give birth in ICUs. That's a structural problem. I never even thought of it that way. Yeah, man. I mean, like if you're, it's so normalized, right? But then when, not, you, when you put it that way, I'm like, that's weird, man. It is super weird. And so my mentor, Atul Gawande, when I first took my job, I struggled to find data about childbirth because it turns out most of the data, like Medicare doesn't pay for childbirth. Thankfully, there are no over 65ers having babies. So it's like balkanized into like 50 Medicaid systems or birth certificates, which are garbage because people like me fill them out. I mean, they're not garbage. Like birth certificates, I know are very meaningful to people, but as data sources, they're they don't tell you data. very noisy. Yeah. So he had a journalist instincts and he told me to just start traveling around and seeing what it looks like to give birth in America, in the world. Yeah. And places like the Darloose Birth Center outside of Albuquerque blew my mind. So I was like, if people knew that they could give birth this way, everybody would. And it really challenged my preconceived notions around what midwifery was, what birthing centers were. I always regarded them as doing what the hospital did, but less uh -huh. and honestly, less safely. Huh. So you don't have a blood bank. You don't have an operating room. Like how can wow. you, how does this work? And then I realized like a lot of what we've done is design the system backwards. Like everybody giving birth deserves and benefits from monitoring, coaching, and support some benefit from neuroaxial anesthesia and some benefit from surgeons, but we give everybody the things that some people benefit from. And then we totally forget about the support. Like, why would you run a marathon without a coach? You know, but like so few people get a doula and we don't, we don't reimburse for that support. Uh -huh. So th those are some of the challenges, but there are plenty of places in the world that um, have designed with different aims in mind. Yeah. Well, Neil, you, you were up all last night delivering babies. Uh, thank you for coming on this morning. I really appreciate it. I'm a uh, huge fan of your work. I've been following it and your research and really excited for this next step in your journey. I really appreciate you being on. Bon, thank you so much. I could talk to you all day. And um, that's probably why I neglected to mention that your book, Healthcare Design Thinking, is mandatory reading for every member of my team. No um, way. Oh my yep. gosh. Yeah, Whoa. way. So I, we love it. And I, I've been trying to um, 
encourage my team to, to t- adopt that definition of a designer in their work and to really yeah. think about design as a discipline because it's not common in schools of public health. Yeah. So it's we buy it for every new member of our team. And I'm going to continue to do that in my new organization. So oh, such an honor. Thank you so much. You can find Dr. Neil Shaw on Twitter. His handle is at N-E-E-L underscore S-H-A-H. On Instagram, he can be found at N-E-E-L underscore T underscore S-H-A-H. And reach out to me by Twitter, Instagram, or email. My Twitter handle is at B-O-N-K-U. Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. My email is bon at designlabpod.com. Design Lab was produced by Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston. And the cover design by Eden Liu. See you soon.